Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. You got any big plans for Valentine's Day weekend? Oh man, come on people. Uh, at least go out to dinner or, or, you know, watch a movie. Or at least you can watch the Super Bowl together, right? Well, did you hear about a guy recently who made a really big mistake on his calendar? He has two tickets to the Super Bowl at SoFi Stadium, okay? Box seats. He paid $21,000. Unfortunately, he forgot it was the same day of his, as his wedding. So... If interested, he's looking for someone to take his place. It's at Faith Community Church in Englewood at 3 p.m. Her name is Ashley. She's 5'4". She'll be the one in the white dress. <laughs> yes, we can laugh. But what a horrible feeling to be abandoned. What a horrible feeling to feel unloved. And you know what? There's times in life we've all felt like that. There's times in life, and maybe some of us even recently, where we have felt abandoned. And we have felt unloved. And maybe, maybe we've questioned whether someone really cares for us at all. Maybe it was a parent or a child or a friend that you thought was a friend. Maybe it was a spouse, a husband or wife. Someone, someone close that has hurt you, hurt you deeply. Maybe they weren't there in your moment of need. And you know what? It's, it's left you confused. You're second-guessing your relationship. You're frustrated. You're angry. And some of us may even feel that way about God. Why, God? Where are you, God? If you really loved me, if you really cared for me, maybe you haven't said it verbally, but maybe at times, whether in the past, now, or in the future, you'll wonder... Does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Today we're going to see the answer to that question as we continue in our Stay Positive series. And we're learning the importance of having God's perspective in this often very negative, very discouraging, very cynical world that you and I live in. We're going to look at a passage on love this morning. It's not the most familiar passage, but one that is very rich and deep in doctrine. It's a passage that contains a series of seven rapid-fire questions, one after the other after the other, and it's found in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Romans with me. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is talking to these believers, Jews and Gentiles, this young church, and he's reminding them and talking to them about all of their present sufferings that they are going through. And he reminds them about this creation all around us that is groaning under the weight and curse of sin. This world is hurting. And then he talks about the struggles with praying. And maybe you know those struggles with praying. When you're going through something, you don't even know how to pray. And you don't even know what to pray. And so there's times that we feel discouraged. We feel defeated in this life. And, and so he writes to these Christians and he's, he's writing to them. He's writing to you. And he's writing to me. Read along with me in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Verse 31. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And so Paul, in essence, is saying, stay positive. Why? Number one is this, because God is 100% for you. Tell the person next to you right now, God is for you. God loves you. God is your biggest fan. Tell them that. You have no bigger fan in this life than God. Today at the Super Bowl, there's going to be some crazed fans. There's no bigger fan for you than God Almighty. The first question he asks in verse 31 is, what then? What are we to say to these things? Ties it in with context. What are these things? Well, these present sufferings you're going through and all creation groaning as you look around at the sin-cursed world and struggling with knowing how to pray and what to pray. How do I make sense of it all, God? What am I to do with it, God? And he asks a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who is against us? So he says, I want you to think logically, not emotionally. I want you to think logically, not filled with worry. Think logically, not in frustration. Not in fear, not in anger. I want you to think logically. If God is for us and the obvious answer is he is, then no one is against you and nothing can stand against you. You may have heard of Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. See, Pastor Murphy has a series called Stay Negative. That's not the series you want to listen to. Have you ever heard of Jacob's Law? He has a law. Jacob in the Old Testament is lamenting his life. Nothing is going right. Everything is against him. And he tells his sons who want to head back to Egypt for more food in Genesis 42. It's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Jacob's law. Woe is me. Why me? Always me. Some of you here today live by Jacob's law. Woe is me. Why me? Always me. Jacob has it all wrong. He shouldn't be waking up looking in the mirror saying, woe is me, why is me? He should be waking up looking in the mirror and saying, God is for me. God is for you. You need to wake up every single day, look in the the mirror and say, God is for me. And if God is for me, nobody can be against me. Even if everything seems to be against me, God is for me. Even if everyone seems to be against me, God is for me. And there are things that are against us in this life. Life can be hard. My wife and my mother-in-law and daughter went to a basketball game yesterday to see a niece of ours play basketball. And it was an away game. Away games can be hard. Away games when the facilities and the situation is unfamiliar. Away games when you're in enemy territory and people are just rooting against you. Christian, you're playing an away game. I want you to understand, you're living an away game on this earth. You're in enemy territory on this earth. The world is cheering against you. They are not for you. This world wants you to lose. 
And this world can be very obnoxious and in your face about it. And you look around at times in the stands of life and they seem empty. And maybe those that were there are leaving the game early. And I want you to understand God is not going to leave the game early. God is your number one fan. God, in a sense, is wearing your jersey. He's wearing your number. He's wearing your name. He knows you by name. Your name is in his book. So even if everyone is against you, God is for you. And even if everything seems to be going wrong, God is for you. See, God is cheering you on and calling your name. He is your number one biggest fan. And all that matters is that God is for you. And he's all you need. So stay positive. God is 100% for you. Secondly, God has given everything to you. He loves you. Look at verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? So first and foremost, he says, I gave you my son. I didn't spare him. Same words used of Abraham offering Isaac in Genesis 22. Since you've not withheld your son from me. He did not even spare his own son. Do you understand what that means? He did not spare his own son. The prophecy of Isaiah 53 prophesied 700 years before Jesus would die for you. Clarifies what it means that God did not spare his own son. Isaiah 53. But we in turn regarded him stricken struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. So when God says, I did not spare my own son, God is saying, I struck him and I afflicted him and I pierced him and I crushed him and I punished him and I crushed him severely because that was the only way you could be forgiven. That was the only way you could be saved from your sin. Don't you ever question God's love for you. He did not spare his own son. And by the way, his son didn't spare himself. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Jesus' own words to the Father in the garden as he sweat great drops of blood in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, take this cup. Father, I don't want to die. Father, I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to be pierced. I don't want to be punished for them. Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, your will is for me to be struck down, pierced, and crushed, and punished for them. Your will be done. Your will is for me to give my life and die for them, your will be done. Father, you love them this much. 
And this is the only way to save them. And this is the only way to forgive them. Then your will be done. Don't you ever question how much God loves you. Charles Wesley poetically put it this way in his third stanza. 1738, he wrote in, can it be? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite in grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See, this is the self-emptying love of Jesus. The great kenosis passage of Philippians chapter two puts it this way. This is Jesus who existing in the form of God did not regard or consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Father, your will be done. You love them this much. I will be struck down. I will be pierced. I will be crushed. And I will be punished so that they can be saved. So that they can be forgiven. So that you could go to heaven. You are loved. You are loved more than you understand. You are worth the price of God's own son. Never question your worth. Never question your value to God. No matter what that ex-spouse says about you, you are loved. No matter how that boss treats you, you are loved. No matter how those classmates or teammates tease you, you are loved. No matter how some fool on social media demoralizes you or demeans you, you are loved. You were worth dying for. You are loved. He gave his son for you. And not only that, he gives you everything, verse 32. How will he not also with him grant us everything? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, summed it up this way. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. See, God gives you Jesus, and with Jesus, God gives you everything. And I want to, at this time, just give you a taste of everything. It's just a small little taste, but I don't have time to read all these passages, or we'll be here another two hours if I start preaching on every single one of them. But let me just give you a taste of what everything is. He's given you every good and perfect gift in this life that you have ever received, James chapter 1. He's given you life itself, life and breath and all things, Acts 17. He's given you rest. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest in Matthew. He gives you sleep. That's a gift from God in Psalm 127. He meets your every need, Psalm 23, 1. He grants you peace. My peace, Jesus said, I leave with you in John 14. He gives us the Holy Spirit to remain in us with us and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption he gives us power and love and sound judgment he doesn't give us a spirit of fear he gives us victory over temptation in 1 Corinthians 10 he's a faithful God who will not allow you to be tempted but beyond what you're able he gives us the scriptures this treasure trove of truth 
In this world filled with lies, God gave you his word. What else has he given you? Wisdom and knowledge and joy. And if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask of God. And he he gives generously, ungrudgingly. He gives you the desires of your heart in Psalm 37. When they're rightly aligned with his will and his word. He gives you a home in heaven. He's prepared a place for you. He gives you citizenship in heaven in Philippians 3. He gives you his promised presence. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you, Hebrews 13. He gives you eternal spiritual blessings, what Pastor Andrew read about from Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavens, predestination, adoption, lavished with his glorious grace, redeemed, forgiven, an eternal inheritance. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Spiritual blessings are the rarest, the richest, the most enduring of all blessings. They're priceless in value. We have not a spiritual blessing which God did not give. We have never earned one. And God is so richly given to us. May God forgive us for ever thinking him unkind or uncaring. May God forgive us for ever complaining about how hard we have it in this life. May God forgive us for forever for forgetting how good or generous he's really been. May God forgive us for ever feeling sorry for ourselves. May God forgive us for ever believing the lies of the enemy that he told to Adam and Eve in the garden. God doesn't have his best in mind for you. God doesn't know what he's doing. You live life on your own and you do what you want. May God forgive us Stay positive. God is 100% for you. Stay positive. God has given everything to you. Stay positive. Third, God completely defends you. This is how much he loves you. Look at verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who can do that? Nobody. God is the one who justifies. There is no one that can accuse you. There is no one that can hold your sin and shame and guilt over your head. God is the one who justifies. There is no one who can judge you for your past, no matter how tainted and twisted and horrible it was. God is the one who justifies. There is no one who can dredge up any and all of the wrongs that you have done. Why? Because Micah tells us he's had compassion on us, he's vanquished our iniquities, and he's cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. And nobody can dredge them up. Psalm 103 tells us he's removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, they are gone. Nobody can accuse you. Nobody, not even the anointed guardian cherub found in Ezekiel 28. He had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty in the garden of God, on the holy mountain of God, we are told, walking among the fiery stones, this angel of light. His name is Satan. He can't even accuse you. He's corrupted himself and profaned with pride and filled with violence. He's the father of lies. He's our arch enemy and adversary. And he's been expelled and disgraced and banished from heaven and thrown down to this earth. And he accuses the brothers, bringing accusations about God's children day and night and night and day. We're told in Revelation 12, 
because the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. What does he say about you before God? What sins does he point out before God? What could he say about you? What does he say about you? What could he say about me? What does he say about me? It matters little. It matters none. For nothing he accuses us of will ever stand. He was unsuccessful with Job in Job chapter 1. He would tell God, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, everything he owns? You've protected him. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But just stretch out your hand, God, and strike everything he owns and he'll surely curse you to his face. Oh, so sure of himself, the enemy. And proven wrong. For Job was one who worshipped God. Not for what God gave him. And not for what God did for him. See, Job didn't believe in the health wealth gospel. And neither does God. See, Job never worshipped God because of what God did for him. Or gave to him. Job worshipped God because Job loved God. Why do you worship God? It's because of what God gives you. Job would say God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship God because you love him. He was unsuccessful with a high priest named Joshua, Zechariah 3. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. He was unsuccessful with Job, unsuccessful with Joshua. He's unsuccessful with Peter. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, look, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Unsuccessful with Job, unsuccessful with Joshua, unsuccessful with Peter, and he'll be unsuccessful with you. Why? Because God is for you, and God has given everything to you, and God is the one that defends you, and God has elected you. Verse 33, you are God's child. You are God's elect. See, you have been chosen to receive his grace. You have been chosen by God to receive his mercy that you and I do not deserve. You have been chosen and declared righteous by your God. See, there is no one that can accuse you. God justifies you. That's what verse 33 says. God is the one who justifies. So instead of being judged by Jesus, yes, Jesus is the judge, not the Father. John 5, 22. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. So instead of being judged by Jesus, you are now justified by Jesus. The one who could and should judge you is now the one who has saved you from your sins. How? How, how can this be? How can I, how can you be declared righteous though we are so sinful? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made the one, that is Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, all of my sins is what he died for. All of your sins he died for. And so what is this about? 
We become the righteousness of God in him. He covers our sin and our shame and our guilt with his righteousness. He clothes you in his righteousness. Isaiah 61. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. See, no longer to shiver in the cold of our filth and our sin and our shame and our guilt. He wrapped me with a warm robe of righteousness. And that's what he did for you. You were shivering in your guilt and your shame and your sin. And he said, let me give you my righteousness. Let me wrap you with the warmth of my love. Let me forgive you. Let me save you. And that's what he did for me and that's what he does for you. And for you here today who have not come to faith, you've not come to Jesus, I want you to understand. He offers you his robe. And he says, would you take it? It'll fit you perfect. Let me give you the warmth of my love. Let me cover that sin. You don't have to shiver in it anymore. Let me cover that shame. Let me cover that guilt. Let him wrap you. Let him wrap you in his robe of righteousness. You'll never be the same again. Stay positive. God is 100% for you. He's given everything to you. He completely defends you. Next, he continually intercedes for you. Look at verse 34. He just just takes us deeper and richer into these doctrinal truths. Who is the one who condemns? Answer, no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Even more, he's been raised. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. And he asks this rhetorical question. No one can condemn you. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Romans 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? Say it with me. No condemnation. So we want you to give no thought to condemnation and give all thought to Christ. Give no thought to condemnation. Give all thought to the one who has wrapped you in his robe of righteousness. And he gives us these four wonderful phrases, died and raised and right hand and intercedes. Just walk through with me. He says, I'm the one that's died for you. How can anybody condemn you? The sacrifice has been made. The price was paid. You are saved. And he says, how can anybody condemn you? You've, he, I was raised for you. The price has been paid. And the cross didn't stay. And the, and the, and the tomb didn't stay empty. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses on the cross. And he was raised for our justification to be declared Righteous. And so the resurrection is proof. It's proof of God's love for you. It's proof that you have been forgiven. It's proof that your sin has been paid for. It's also proof guaranteeing you a resurrection body someday glorified, just as Jesus had. So he says, you're not condemned. I died for you. You're not condemned. I was raised for you. You're not condemned. I'm at the right hand of God for you. This place of honor and exaltation and majesty, Hebrews 1.3. 
when he made purification for sins, that's a cross, and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's where Jesus is, at the right hand of the Father. And our great high priest, Hebrews 10, every priest would stand day after day, ministering, offering same sacrifices, time after time after time. And all those sacrifices the priests of the Old Testament do could never take away any sins. They all pointed to the great sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. But this man, verse 12, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing all this time at the right hand of God? His ministry continues. That's the next phrase. He intercedes for us, verse 34. See, I want you to understand something about Jesus. He's not some prosecuting attorney pointing out all of your sin, revealing every wrong that you've ever done. Jesus is your advocate, and he's pleading your case before the Father. And anybody's case who will humbly come to him and take his robe of righteousness. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. Be careful of sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Think about that with me. Call out to your advocate. He's the one that pleads your case. And if you've never done that, call out to him. And he will save you. And he will justify you. He will declare you righteous and forgiven. And Jesus continually intercedes, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede. So he says, come at any time. What are your concerns in this life? What do you need help with? Where do you need mercy right now? In what area do you need God's grace? Come to him right now. He continually intercedes. So much so, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, he's gentle. He's kind. And he understands you. Because he was human and is human. Like you and like me. See, we're told here, come to the one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so you come to your advocate, you come to your Savior, you come to Jesus, and you come boldly to this throne, not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of what? Of grace. And he says, you'll receive the mercy, you'll find the grace, and I will give you the help you need in your time of need. What are you waiting for, child of God? Spend more time on your knees and less time on your phone. What are you waiting for, child of God? Spend more time in prayer and less time on social media. What are you waiting for, child of God? Spend more time with your Lord. He loves you. He grants grace. He grants mercy. He gives help. Come to him. Come. 
If God is 100% for you and given everything to you and completely defends you and continually intercedes for you, well then obviously and most certainly, God will forever and always love you. Look at verse 35 through 39. We have these final two questions in verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer, once again, is obvious. No one can separate you from God's love. Nothing will ever separate you from God's love. God will never stop loving you. Your salvation is 100% secure. And he lists all of these problems that people face, affliction and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And he says, no affliction in this life will ever separate you from God's love. So don't you doubt God's love for a minute, no matter what you face. No matter the pain that the world exerts against you, physically or emotionally, afflicts. He says no distress, secondly, can separate you from God's love. No matter how intense the pressure is that you are feeling in this world, with your finances, with your relationships, with your health, no matter the temptations that you face, it doesn't matter, you're never gonna be without God's love. No matter the persecution, no persecution can separate you from God's love. And persecution is real. And persecution is growing. See, there's other things beside the Olympics happening in China. Here's a picture of a pastor that's being arrested and taken away. Here's a statement that was just released from Voice of the Martyrs. Pray for Christians in China. Hundreds of churches have been forced to close. Pastors and church members have been arrested or detained. And the online sale of Bibles has been prohibited. A campaign to remove crosses from churches continues in one province. The government has instilled more than 170 million facial recognition cameras, many in or near churches, in an effort to identify those who attend worship services. They're doing everything possible to crush the church in China. They will never crush God's love for his people. No affliction, no distress, no persecution. He next says no famine can separate you from God's love, possibly the result of persecution or imprisonment for your faith. No nakedness can separate you from God's love. Again, possibly from the persecution and imprisonment, feeling destitute, being vulnerable, unable to even clothe yourself in prison. No danger can separate you. No matter what mistreatment somebody levels against you, and then he says, no sword can separate you from God's love. Not even death itself or the threat of death can separate you from the love of God. And by the way, that entire list of those things, these are all things Paul faced and so much more in this life. If you just go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 28, he just lists off all the things that he's faced. Imprisonments and beatings and whippings and so many times toward uh, near death. And he was stoned and, and shipwrecked and dangers from rivers and robbers and Gentiles and false brothers and false teachers and wilderness and, and in the city and sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and without food and cold and without clothing. And then he has all the pressure on all the, all the churches. And he says, but I am not separated from God's love. They can do anything to me. I am not separated from God's love. The life of a Christian can be hard. It's a long line of Christians through the ages that know what it's like to suffer for Jesus. Some of them are recorded in Hebrews 11. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Can you imagine? 
laying on a table and then take out that saw. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And I love this phrase, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. So who? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? What? Can anything separate you from the love of Christ? And then the answer is given in verse 37 through 39 of chapter 8. Here's the answer. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. The answer is a resounding no. Nothing. Never. It is impossible for you to be separated from the love of God. Why no nothing? Because he says you have a conquering love. You're more than conquerors. Literally, the word means you are super conquerors. You are a continual repeat gold medalist every single day of your life. That's who you are in Christ. You continue to conquer and you continue to be loved. And his love conquers the affliction and the distress and the persecution and the famine and the nakedness and the danger and the sword. And so live with zero doubts in verse 38. He says, I'm persuaded. He says, believe in this and rejoice in this. And then he gives us a list of 10 things to drive home the point even more. He says, I'm persuaded neither death or life or angels or rulers or things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any created thing. He says, just think about this. Death cannot separate you from the love of God. As a matter of fact, death ushers you into the very presence of God. It's a gateway. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to God who gave it. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, in fact, we're confident. We would prefer to be away from this body and be home with the Lord. Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and die is what? Gain. And that's just the attitude this young lady has. Her name is Brooklyn Salisbury. You can follow her on social media. She doesn't have long to live. She's 25 years old, lives in Colorado, suffers from a disease known as heads. Connective tissues of her body are all falling apart, but she also suffers from nervous uh, system problems, immune system problems, digestive tract problems. Her body basically is shutting down. And she's now on hospice off all medication as of February 1st and expected to die by the end of this month. This is something she just wrote the other day. I've got good news. I woke the other day thinking, oh my goodness, I'm dying. Of course, I've known this for a while, but yesterday I felt it. I know what dying feels like as I've been on this progression multiple times in my life. Other times, however, the prerogative was to fight and survive. This time, the goal is to surrender to the process. But I realize the real prerogative here is also to survive, to obtain eternal life, John 12, 25. The good news, assurance of eternal life. She goes on, I am saved through the gospel of truth. 
He had a plan from the beginning. God would send his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life and died without ever having sinned. Jesus rose again from the grave, conquering death and offering salvation to all who will believe in him. She writes, therefore, all who have faith in Jesus, who confess him as the only way to eternal life, have been given the gift of life with him forever. And then she says, this is great news. And that's the gospel. Great news that you can't be separated from God's love. Even death can't separate you. And then he says life. Verse 35, life can't separate you. Life. With any of the pains and all of the problems you face in this life. Romans 14, 8, so if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to who? The Lord. And then he says not death, not life, not angels or rulers. The forces of hell can't separate you from the love of God. This unforeseen host of demons, Ephesians talks about those rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this darkness, spiritual forces of the heaven, they can't do a thing against you, not even the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. Things present, things to come can't separate you. He says anything you are going through in this life will never separate you from God's love. And everything that you're going to go through in the future will not separate you from God's love. You are loved. And then he says powers can't separate you. Men in positions of political power, whether they be mayors or, or governors or presidents, they can't do anything. They can't separate you from the love of God. Powerful men or bosses or whoever it is are not to be feared. And then he says nor height nor depth Basically saying, nothing in the heavens can separate you from my, my love, and nothing on this earth can separate you from my love. And then he says, and no created thing, which means a lot. Because this is coming from your uncreated, always existing, all-powerful, everywhere present God. And he says, why would you ever fear anything that was created? When I am your uncreated, all-powerful, always existing God. I have you in my hands and I love you and nothing's going to take my love away from you. He says, I got you covered. It's an unbreakable bond of love. It's a conquering love and he tells us it's an inseparable love. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 39. So do you get this? Verse 33 no one can accuse you. Verse 34, no one can condemn you. Verse 39, no one can separate you. You're mine, and I love you, and I will never stop loving you. It's an inseparable love. This man is George Matheson. He was born in 1842. He was the oldest of eight children. He suffered from a degenerative eyesight eye disease and by the time he was 18 he was totally blind he was a gifted diligent student though he would graduate from the University of Glasgow in Scotland and he would go on to graduate from seminary and he would go on and be a pastor pastor numerous churches including a large influential one in the city of Edinburgh he loved a woman he loved her dearly and he was engaged to her and she broke off the engagement telling him these words I do not want to be the wife of a blind man. And it broke his heart. And that heartbreak would surface from time to time. I do not want to be the wife of a blind man. It would surface a few years later on the night of his own sister's wedding. 
And then his sister, this one was the one who was his primary helper. He says that when the rest of the family had arrived for the wedding, something happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. And those words would come back to Hanum again. I do not want to be the wife of a blind man. He would channel that suffering and write what would become a beloved hymn in his day. And he said that the hymn was the fruit of that suffering. And it began with these words. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. George Matheson never did marry, but he was loved with an inseparable love. And he continued to prove the truth of the words that he penned. God's love never let him go. And God's love will never let you go. Rest your weary soul in him. His love will never let you go. You really are loved. God is 100% for you. And he has given everything to you. And he completely defends you. And he continually intercedes for you. And he will forever and always love you. And what I want to do right now, for you at home and for you in person, I want us to remember his love. And God has given us a visible, tangible reminder in the Lord's table, in communion. And so for you at home, I want to invite you to gather your elements right now, the bread, the juice, and partake of communion and remember God's love. For you here that are in person, if you didn't pick up your elements on the way in, just raise your hand nice and high. Just raise them up and our ushers will make sure that you get the elements for communion. Just keep your hand up and they'll see your hand and they'll make sure you get them if you didn't get them already. We're told in scripture that communion is a time of self-examination. So this is not a time for you to examine other people around you or for them to examine you. This is a time for you to examine yourself and for me to examine myself. And so let's do that. We're told let a person examine self and in this way then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And would you prepare your hearts? Would you thank God for his conquering inseparable love? Would you thank him for giving his son? Would you thank him for clothing you in righteousness? Would you confess any sins that need to be confessed? Maybe you've come in and gathered and there's some attitudes in your heart that are not right. There's jealousy or anger that needs to be confessed. There's worry or fear that needs to be confessed. There's selfishness. There's pride. There's self-pity that needs to be confessed. Would you do that right now and ask the Lord to forgive you? Lord, we just thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon it as we draw close to you. Would you draw close to us? 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told that in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread. Would you take that piece of bread? It symbolizes the body of our Lord. And he had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the body of our Lord that hung on that cross to save us from our sins. That same night, it was not just the bread, but it was also the cup. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. It had to be a blood sacrifice. That's how he washes away our sins. So let's give thanks and let's remember the Lord's sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you have not come to faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you first and foremost that it's not about doing good works or trying to be a good person that gets you to heaven. It's about resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And I just want to encourage you to call out to the Savior and let him save you from your sins. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? So if you're here today and you've not come to faith, you're at home or driving and you've not come to faith, would you call out to Jesus? Would you call out to the Lord? Just use words like these in the quietness of your heart. Lord, I need you. I can't save myself. Would you please forgive me of all my sin? Would you please save me from all of my sin? Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for your love. God, would you clothe me with your righteousness? I'm tired of shivering in my sin. God, please save me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest's new beginnings, visit at harvest.church.